Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. On today's show, we have on Andy Bass, coordinator of mental conditioning for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Andy has an awesome story as a former professional baseball pitcher who developed the yips and then decided that he wanted to focus his attention onto helping players with the mental side by getting his advanced degrees in psychology and then motor learning. So on the show, we discuss how we can integrate mindfulness into our practice sessions. We go over how to allow some autonomy with our players, and we dive deep into game-like practices and feedback loops. You're gonna love this episode with Andy Bass. Andy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is an absolute, absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you. You told me that you listened to the show and it's always, it truly is flattering whenever just anyone reaches out and said, Hey, I love, you know, I love your show. It's, it's something that I listen to such and such time and, and it's really helped me. And, and I do encourage uh, our listeners while we're on the subject, if you are enjoying the show or if you are enjoying a podcast, reach out to, to those people because you never know. I'm sitting behind a mic and I'm getting to enjoy the conversation with Andy, but it's always encouraging and really it gives you know podcasters energy to be able to hear that from, from different guests. And, and so that you made my day whenever you told me that. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a long story short here. So I heard you, or I heard a guest on Brett Bartholomew's podcast, which is the Art of Coaching, which is fantastic. And she mentioned that she had you you on a podcast, a, a separate podcast. So I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. You got they were talking about differential learning, mm-hmm. and uh, so I went back and listened to that one. And then I literally went to to iTunes and searched Andy Bass and listened to about three or four different ones. And I was like, I got to have this guy on. So long story short, that's, uh, we, we have a mutual friend in Drew Saylor who I'm glad he put us in touch, but I was just really taken aback by like how, how well and how much, you know, but also how practical it is. And so I know that you're a part-time psychologist, part-time skill acquisition guy and and you're also a you know I would consider you a coach as well because you can you can break it down with with everyone too but with all the flattery and everything can you give <laughs> us a little short snapshot of of how you got to where you are now where you're at now and then you know what led you to that yeah and uh, thank you so much for those kind words that truly means a lot coming from someone of your stature uh, in a nutshell Played baseball in college at Davidson, was fortunate enough to play professional baseball with the Tampa Bay Rays and with the Chicago White Sox. And I got the yips pretty much immediately in professional baseball. And I, I'd studied psychology during my undergrad philosophy as well. So I'd always been interested in the field um, and particularly sports psychology. It was just not a class that was offered at my school at the time. And so when I was going through this really arduous time trying to throw a strike. It really got me interested in how the mental game works. And so when I got out of pro ball, uh, I got released twice within a year, which is, I feel, a pretty spectacular accomplishment to be released twice within a span of 300 days. Um, I was like, what's next? Where do I need to go? And my mother actually helped me stumble upon the program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, and they had sports psychology. Now, the other part of their program that they had was motor behavior, motor learning, and I had never heard of that before. I was purely interested in the program for the sports psychology aspect, so I enrolled um, to get my master's degree, and the philosophy that that program took with combining sports psychology and motor learning, um, once I learned what skill acquisition was and how motor learning can influence the mental game and how the mental game can influence motor learning, I really wanted to research it and study it. And so I wanted to get my PhD. Uh, at the time, I wanted to be a professor. I loved teaching and I enjoyed research. It, it was good for me. I liked it. I wouldn't say I was the best researcher in the world. Um, so I was fortunate to be admitted to get my doctorate at UT working under Dr. Jeff Fairbrother. And so the way I describe it is my master's degree was about 70% focused on sports psychology, 30% motor learning, and my doctorate was flip-flopped about 70% motor learning, 30 sports psych. And the first semester of my doctorate, I ran into Dr. Bernie Holiday at a sports psych conference. And he and I started to get to talk and he found out that I played pro ball. And he said, wow, we, we need to have you down to Pirate City and maybe you could intern for us for a little bit. And I was absolutely anything I can do to be around baseball. And so I was just basically politely annoying for the next three years with the Pirates saying, hey, can I come down and hang out? And hey, can I come to spring training for a little bit? And Come the last year of my doctorate, um, they offered me a full-time position. Uh, I was 
over the moon. I was like, I will absolutely take that job. And so starting, I, I finished at Tennessee May 2nd of 2018 and May 4th, I was down at extended spring training, basically just learning in the middle of the season and doing um, mental conditioning, the mental game with players and coaches. And then as I started to get more and more comfortable with the system and people started to get to know me more, really starting to push my, uh, my knowledge of motor learning and how skill acquisition can really help influence athletes and create this more efficient learning environment. It's not like we've been teaching things wrongly in baseball or sport. It's just a matter of efficiency. And so now with my kind of three years in, it's been really fun to see coaches, and I consider myself a coach, like you said, start to integrate motor learning concepts on the field and using those motor learning concepts to enhance mentality. So that's kind of the long and short of how I got to where I am today. I love that. And, and okay, so we've got a lot to unpack there. And I know that we've got a lot to unpack today because uh, as I was going through this question list, this has been, you know, one of my more exciting adventures of getting to learn about not only motor learning, but I think I took most of this year and tried to learn as much as possible about the brain. And mm -hmm. so it's just, it, just because everything starts there. And so I was prompted in January to really chunk my learning of, of, of trying to get several different top or one topic for several months and then trying to find differences, similarities and all of these different things. But I think I've been on the brain the entire year just because it's so complex and so vast and so interesting, but I do want to rewind. So you mentioned that you got the, and I don't even want to say the word, uh, the unspeakable, right? So you got that <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> right. And so it, right. you can say it, but I, I don't want to, uh, but you did that and you said that you were working through a process of being able to get over it. So I, I read an article about you talking about that and, and you said that you didn't want to let it beat you. That's why you came back with another team mm -hmm. and you were, and you were able to over, overcome that. And so I have been around a couple of players with that. Uh, we may have some coaches or players listening that may have be, may be dealing with that now or may have dealt with that in the past. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what helped you and how do you help players that overcome that? Yeah, that's a that's definitely a million dollar question when it comes to that concept. Um, I can give you kind of what maybe didn't work for me and what, what are some things that I've had fortunate chance to work with some of our players that may work for them. Um, I, I have no problem not, you know, you can just say it, the word or, you know, he who it that must not be named. I do think that what would have helped me would have been to just say, hey, you are dealing with this. We, we don't we'd have to call it the yips. But man, you're obviously in a place where this is this is a big deal for you. So to call out the elephant in the room, I think would have been helpful for me. Uh, the joke that I always fall back on is denial is not just a river in Egypt. And I think, mm, I think good. I was kind of in denial a little bit and it was not a fault of my coaches, but I think they were too, that if we don't talk about this, then it will go away. And I think that just kind of led me into quicksand where I was struggling so hard to get out of it, struggling so hard to move away from it that I ended up sinking deeper and deeper. And it probably would have helped to have somebody sit me down and say, you are not you right now. There's no way this is who you are. Let's talk about this. Let's get it out, um, particularly from an emotional standpoint. I think what's, what's really interesting, and I'm going to throw out a $15 word here, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, when we look at how we express emotions, and when we just admit the emotion that we're feeling, we don't have to say it out loud. We can say it to ourselves. But if I'm going through this and I can say, I am going through this situation, I feel depressed, I feel angry. I feel sad. All the emotions that I felt, we've actually found that physiologically, our, our nervous system calms down. Our, our heart rate slows down a little bit. Our, our, our veins dilate. Um, just everything starts to calm down when we admit the emotion that we're feeling. And I think that would have really helped me out a lot too. Um, in regard to the second part of your question of helping, have I been able to help athletes in our system there have been a few that have gone through this. Um, they've actually been more position players uh, than pitchers. I, I was a pitcher. And one thing that, that seems to stick with guys is I will, um, I will hand, if, if a guy's going through this, I'll hand him an empty water bottle and I will say, can you get the air out of here? And they'll sometimes say things like crush it or like, you know, stick a vacuum in it. And, and the answer to it is, is fill it with water. And we, then we bring that back to the mental game of, well, if your mind is completely filled to the brim with one conscious thought, 
whether that's four-seam grip, four-seam grip, four-seam grip, if they're maybe a catcher or an infielder. If they're a pitcher, it's through the mitt, through the mitt, through the mitt, this external cue. Um, not something that's internal. You know, if they're trying to think about how their body moves, the literature is pretty strongly suggesting that that constrains our action. So filling our mind with one conscious external cue, um, I feel like can really help an athlete in the moment start to work through that and start to work back toward that more fluid action versus thinking about how their body moves and that inhibits it, that internal cue. Okay. And so it's, me thinking out loud here and, and wanting to be coached up by you a little bit, part of that, we can work that into part of their routine because I know that like most people would teach routines as, as a deep breath, maybe mm-hmm. a focal point, an action word, and then you step into the box and you're, and you're ready to go. Like that's just their constant routine in an unconstant game. Mm-hmm. Would that be part of that? Like coach me up here. Um, yes, I, I love that. And um, Dr. Holiday with the Pirates, he, what you just described there of having a routine and then stepping into play, uh, this idea of a think box, play box. Uh, we have our root, and the, the great thing about baseball is we've got boxes. We've got a batter's box and we've got a pitcher's mound. They're both kind of boxes. And you have this, this breath that you have, um, this deep belly breath. And then you have this external cue of if you're a batter at the plate, you're, you know, you're thinking about seeing the ball early. And so you have this think box of here's my routine, here's my mental routine. And then as I step into the play box, Everything is go. Everything is that external cue of what is my external goal. Um, so, yes, I think that's a wonderful thing that coaches can do is have that mental prep in the think box. And then once they step into the batter's box or on the mound, now they're in the play box with that one external goal. I love that. And, and I know uh, this has been something that I've, I've, you know, I've reignited my love for the mental game just because I think that you know, it's, it was something that, that I latched onto early on. And then I got really, really into like biomechanics and just mechanics in general and how the body moves. And, and then I started digging it, like I told you earlier, digging into the brain this year. And it's just, I'm like, man, I have done a very poor job of actually teaching the mental side of baseball. And it's, it is so important. And I know that's very cliche, but at the same time, it's like, that's literally where everything starts. Everything starts with a thought or something that goes along with your brain that's telling your muscles and your joints and your, your limbs to be able to move. And, and so it's so interesting. And, and again, I, I don't know if the guests can, can tell, but I'm really excited uh, to talk with you today. But I want to know what does your, well, <laughs> this may be a, a loaded question with 2020, but what does your usual day to day look like? So let's say we fast flash forward into maybe spring training. Let's, let's start there. So getting to know the players a little bit, maybe you already have, but what did your day to day look like in spring training before we all got sent home? Sure. And, and I'll, I'll kind of take us through what a 2020 spring training looked like before, before COVID hit. Um, we were really working toward a, um, a player-centered approach, so the players taking control of their own career. And, and I think for the longest time that concept has been used in coaching and in sports, and it's said with good intention, but it's kind of hard to release control as coaches and as those that are teachers. And so what we, what we started doing this year was kind of creating a menu style for the mental game for our players. So we would have a mindfulness session um, at 7.30 in the morning. and any player that wanted to show up could. It, we would basically have five minutes of deep breathing, of setting an intention for the day. Uh, we have a, we call it our mental conditioning dojo. We'd roll out a, 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 a judo mat and guys could come in, coaches, staff, players alike, and just go through this five minute intention setting for the day. And, and we would shoot out a text to players or, or emails to players on a platform saying, hey, we're doing this at 730, join if you want. Sometimes we'd have only three players come in. Sometimes we'd have 25 players come in. So that's how the day would start. Um, and then usually when we're out on the field, uh, my team, my mental conditioning team, we are just around. The biggest thing with anybody that does applied sports psychology or mental conditioning is being around players, making them feel comfortable that you are a part of their day and a part of the process. And the joke that I tend to tell a lot of people is 90% of what I discuss with players is, when I say nonsense, it's just small talk. It's Hey, what movie did you watch? Or, hey, do you like fishing? Do you like hunting? Or, hey, how's life going? So most of my day is around developing relationships and these 90% of the conversation just being about a person, just being in the moment with them. And what's so lovely about that and fantastic about that is then all of a sudden we'll find ourselves in this two minutes. I'll, I'll be in a 10-minute conversation with a player about virtually nothing. And for two minutes, 
they bring up something that has to do with their mental game and we'll work through it and then we'll move on to something else. And it's kind of that idea. The player doesn't even recognize that we've had a conversation about it and it's come up because of them. And so those conversations happen throughout the day. We'll go through the work day. Um, we'll have lunch. And typically then we will do another mindfulness session, completely optional after lunch. That's very much intention setting for the game that they're about to play. Uh, so guys can come in five minutes, just getting your mind right for the game. Game is over. We will then have a rest and relaxation mental conditioning session after the game, completely optional. And then at the end of that, when that is over, we will then do an optional mental conditioning session, whether that's a session over self-talk, over visualization, over confidence, uh, whatever kind of mental tool, mental skill it may be. And, and in the past, this has been more of, hey, we need you all to come in. But this year, it was very much an autonomy-centered approach of, here is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about self-talk today. And it'd be really neat to see guys that wanted to work on self-talk that would come in and guys that wouldn't. But then the next day, we were talking about visualization. And you'd have a completely different set of guys come in. And I think that really set the tone for where is a guy in his own understanding of his mental game based on what he wants to work on and what he doesn't want to work on. So the long and short of it is there was a lot of autonomy, a lot of options to get reps at the mental game, but it was based on what the players felt that they needed. And that was kind of how the 2020 spring training went for us from a mental conditioning standpoint. I really like that. And it's, it's not something that you have to block out an entire hour for meditation in the morning to be able to do that. You, like you said, it was five minutes before and five minutes after, and that may lead to more time to be able to do things. And, and so Andy, with, with most of our guests, they're in the amateur ranks. And mm -hmm. so you're thinking college, high school. And so if we've had a lot of questions in regards to how do I, how do I, you know, quote unquote, fit this in, or how do I do this well? And I just, I, I wonder what your thoughts are in regards to that, because we don't, you know, in, in the amateur ranks, they don't really have much time one-on-one. Uh, -on -one or optional time, you have extra work mm -hmm. and things like that, which I'm sure you're very well aware of, but you also have this, an entire team setting where you can do some of these things together. Coach us up. How would you, how would you do that? Yes. And certainly understand the constraints of the amateur ranks and the collegiate ranks going through that myself. Um, it doesn't take long to, like I said, it's five minutes here and there. Here's actually where I'll bring the motor learning aspect into it. Um, when we make practice difficult, via these motor learning concepts, the players inherently work on their own mental game. When we engage in things like differential learning or the constraints-led approach, which I'm sure we will get into later, these are very difficult training environments, and they force this organic failure. And what a great way to lead into a 30-second conversation on the field if we're doing a drill with an infielder that's causing this failure, that's causing his self-talk to plummet, that his confidence is shaken. And now it's, hey, where is your mind at right now? It's, coach, I'm, I'm flustered. I, I don't really know what to do right now. Okay, well, we talked about a breath before practice, right? Yeah, we did. Well, next time we're feeling this, let's try that breath. And then bang, go right back to the drill. And I think that's where the low-hanging fruit of the motor learning concepts come in is they allow for these conversations to come out in a baseball practice. I think it can be very difficult to discuss emotions and confidence and self-talk during a baseball practice where there's constant success and Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm certainly painting with a broad brush here, but I think for the longest time, baseball has thrived on the idea of if we look perfect in practice, that means that we're learning. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Um, that is a transient performance effect. And so for the, to answer your question, and then to maybe even get into a little deeper side of that, engaging in these motor learning concepts, particularly for coaches that may not have a lot of time or resources to people that understand sports psychology, I think is a great way to lead into that conversation with players in the moment. And now we can talk about the mental game when they're actually frustrated. It can be really hard to, you know, a guy is just crushing frozen ropes in batting practice. And then he steps out of the turtle and you say, Hey, like, how was your self-talk there? Oh, it was great. I was nailing the ball every time. Okay, good. Well, that self-talk is probably not going to be that way in the game. And they probably didn't even have to be that focused up because they were getting traditional batting practice. So now they're not even working on their focus versus it was a, it was a batting practice where it's more mixed. It's they're having to take pitches. Now their focus is heightened. So as a coach, we have organically 
heightened and and made their focus even that more effective without even having to talk about it. No, it's really good. And that allows you to one, talk about it and then experience it and then learn from it. And all of those are just fantastic learning opportunities for sure. You know, with, with me being a teacher in my background, that's obviously a a reflection piece. And, uh, like you mentioned, having that tough practice allows them to kind of go through it, work through it, and then you can reflect on it. I think that's, that's for, especially for me too. I think that's, that's the best way that we learn things of, okay, this actually happened to me. Now I've got to reflect on what I did. Did it work? Did it not work? And, and be able to learn that. And I, I think that that's, that's fantastic. I, I love that. And so one thing that, that I have been, uh, one of my latest ponderings lately is, is how do we get players to play fearless? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that it is an opportunity for us as coaches, if we can free them up to be and play fearless, how much better do you think the player is? And then what are some different, do you, one, do you agree? Do you not agree? And then two, if you do agree or not agree, what do you think about that? And then how, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we break through the barrier that is fear that is causing some of them to not play as well? I, I agree. Um, I think when we think about fear, it should be yes, playing fearless, but having a healthy respect for the fear that we feel. There's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful video of Michaela Schifrin, who's basically the the Michael Jordan, the uh, Maria Sharapova of downhill skiing. And if anybody that knows anything about downhill skiing, they're going an insane speed down a hill and one little trip up can seriously cause them injury. And she talks about how she, she says, are, am I afraid? Yes, I'm afraid. And that's okay. Um, if I didn't feel afraid, something would be wrong with me. Now going, going, going 80 miles an hour down an icy slope is a little different than sometimes maybe when we think about baseball. Um, but I think the fear can be healthy. It's how do we interpret the fear? Um, do we view it as something to run away from or do we view it as something to lean into? And fear tends to lead to nerves. And I think a lot of times we think of nerves and fear in that we shouldn't feel them. Well, nerves are an, a performance enhancer. Uh, that we, what we feel when we're nervous is no different than what we feel when we're excited. Our heart beats. Um, we need to use the bathroom. Uh, we sweat. Uh, you know, we, we get that dry cotton mouth. So the same things we feel when we're excited, we feel when we're sometimes afraid or when we're nervous. And so it's reinterpreting that as this is exciting. And this is something that I can lean into, even if it doesn't feel good. So I think recognizing that fear is natural and not running away from it, leaning into it and being open to the idea that if I'm afraid, if I'm nervous, that's okay. It doesn't mean that I still can't go out and be an awesome ball player and absolutely dominate. So I guess that would be my, my answer to the fear question. Does that get it kind of what you were talking about? Because no, then I love that. Yeah. And then there, the interesting part about some of these motor learning methods with fear that you were speaking of, and since you mentioned your interest in the brain, um, when we engage in differential learning, so this idea of adding variability into the system, not trying to do the same thing over and over, uh, what's really cool is that these two waves, uh, you know, our brains are basically just giant batteries. Uh, that emit electrical signals. And the two electrical signals that are emitted when we engage in differential learning, this variable training, so, you know, hitting from different stances once in a while, um, uh, fielding from different stances, throwing from different arm slots if if we're an infielder, are alpha and theta. And now these two waves are actually associated with mindfulness and neuroplasticity. And so when we do this training, our minds actually grow and we're actually engaged in a form of mindfulness which is very beneficial. And then the other part of that is those two waves help calm down our amygdala. And our amygdala is that fight or flight response. So mm-hmm. the, this kind of training, this very difficult training actually helps our fear control. So now in the bottom of the ninth inning, because we've trained a certain way, we've actually rewired our brains to view the situation differently because the electrical signals that are emitted help calm down our arousal control. No, that's, that's, that's really, really good. So I, I'm going to give you a situation. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay? okay. So let's say that you've got a highly ranked prospect. And as you know, in the professional ranks, uh, they use wood bats. And so we set up a really hard slider machine and he breaks like five bats. And then he's like, I'm done. <laughs> so how would we, how maybe you, we should have done better work on the front end 
of explaining why we're doing these things, which is fine. But Uh then we all, regardless of the level that we're at, we're going to run into maybe a good player that just says, Hey, this isn't working for me. I'm done. And then kind of, kind of fades away from wanting to train a little bit dirty in that setting. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's where, like you said at first, explaining why, and as coaches being, being comfortable explaining why, and you know, we don't have to go into what all the, the motor control uh, neuroscience that I just did, but explaining why it's important. And we don't have to throw them into the deep end immediately, particularly like a top end prospect coming from college. Things are very different in pro ball than in college. So it can be a slow drip with players uh, because we can push them physically, but emotionally and mentally, they're not there yet. And so I think maybe if you have this top prospect who's used to hitting 450 and to bring him in with a wood bat off this dirty slider machine, uh, there is a point where we can push guys too far. And so I think that that's the art of coaching, along with the science of coaching, is knowing the athletes and knowing where they're at to push them to that, that gap, that optimal gap, without pushing them too far where they completely shut down. Because, yes, the, these training methods that are based on failure, um, we, you know, we can go too far to the other direction where now it becomes a shadow and they just break apart because we push them too far. So, yes, I completely agree that there is a case to going too far. We just need to have this slow drip and let guys start to embrace failure. Um, last part I'll add to that failure point is because we talk about how important failure is. We learn through failure. Athletes hear this. Coaches hear this. The icing on the cake with failure and with what you just talked about with that top prospect, now we put him in this situation where he's failing constantly but he's not viewing failure properly he's viewing it as something that is difficult that he wants to run away from Mm -hmm. bringing some brain science back into this well if we view failure as something that yes we quote unquote know it is important but we still kind of run away from it for the simplicity's sake the electrical signal that's emitted is like a three but if we can embrace that failure so now that top prospect has had failure this intermittent increase in failure and now they start to embrace it that electrical signal is a 15 so when we start to embrace failure we actually tend to learn five times faster than when we just fail and we despise it no that's that's absolutely fantastic and i I think again you tell tell me what you think about this too I, i think that with what i've learned uh with the brain it's that when we do fail, it alarms our brain that something is a little bit different and therefore we pay more attention to that and therefore we are potentially learning quicker and better from that instance than if we just go through it and it's like flips or T-work and we're just kind of mindlessly doing that. Would that is that pretty accurate? Uh, 100% accurate. Yes, that when that feedback expectation loop is really close, so when we're hitting off a T or we're just hitting flips, uh, the expectation is that we're going to absolutely crush the ball. And because of that way that drill is set up, we pretty much are. And so it's you're not creating a lot of noise in the system because if the feedback is I'm going to crush this ball, or the expectation is I'm going to crush this ball, and the feedback every time is, yes, you crush this ball, then they're both the same. They're in parallel. They're in tandem to each other. Whereas in these difficult training uh, environments, our feedback, our expectation is I'm going to crush this ball, but then the feedback is you just whiffed on three. There's a very large discrepancy between what we expected and the feedback. And typically to a point, the larger that loop is, the more learning occurs. So let's talk about feedback loops a little bit. Now, uh, again, we have a, a, a huge array of guests, and I know that that's a term that is very popularized in the skill acquisition world. And so, a feedback loop. Let me let me see if I can if I can nail this down. So, we get feedback from almost everything that we do, and then so you're talking about the time between like the stimulus and then when whenever we try that thing again, that would be our feedback loop. So, whatever feedback that we get from the drill. So, let's say we're hitting front toss. And if the feedback loop is too short, it doesn't allow us enough time to be able to think about that and to adjust like we would in a game. Or if we're trying to fix a certain skill, it doesn't allow us the opportunity for our brain to talk to, I I don't know, maybe talk to our body about what we're feeling and how we can fix it. Was that right? Or was that wrong? 
And so, I mean, that's my best way of, of trying to break it down. But uh, how, how would you, how would you explain feedback loops, I guess? I, you, you hit it perfectly there too. And, and there are, there are two different types of, of feedback loops or different types of feedback. There's intrinsic feedback, which is what we get from our body. It's what we feel when we really connect on a good pitch. Like when we square it up on the barrel, uh, the sound that a pitch makes when we really got some good backspin and it just lights that mid up. So that's intrinsic feedback. It's always available to the athletes. Um, I believe the feedback loop that you're referring to, that too quick a feedback loop, that's this extrinsic feedback, it, augmented feedback. And that usually we think about that being verbal feedback from a coach. And, and yes, there is this, this concept in motor learning um, where it, it's a delay interval. So if I am hitting in a cage and I take a swing and let's say within you know, half a second to a second, the coach tells me you were, you know, you're, you're too much on your front foot there. We can give feedback too quickly because like you said, we need time to internalize that intrinsic feedback. That intrinsic feedback for the most part is way more valuable than anything, any source of verbal feedback, even the most knowledgeable coach can give. So if we as coaches are providing feedback too quickly, um, we can interrupt that intrinsic feedback, which is the athlete's own best coach. And it's not long. This delay interval doesn't have to be that long. There's been several studies that have shown that if it's just maybe two seconds, which we don't think is that long, but in the coaching world, if we think about sitting there for two Mississippi after a swing, it can seem like an eternity. But yes, the longer we can wait on providing that verbal feedback, typically the athlete starts to really become aware of how their body moved in that situation. And the reason it's called augmented feedback is that it's meant to provide further information on top of the intrinsic feedback. We do not want players to become dependent on augmented feedback, on verbal feedback. We want them to become dependent on their body's feedback. And to kind of close the, or cap this off a little bit, with the idea of verbal feedback, there's this other idea in motor learning called the guidance hypothesis, which states that verbal feedback has these guiding properties where if I'm constantly telling you, hey, your elbow was here, hey, your front foot was there, your front side flew open, you didn't get extension. So that's a lot of verbal feedback. Well, the athlete can become dependent on that. And in practice, maybe that's not so bad because you as the coach are there. But then in the game, guess what? Coaches aren't out on the mound. Coaches aren't in the batter's box. So now the athlete has become dependent on that verbal feedback to make the correction, but it's not going to be there in a game. And so the athlete may actually end up suffering more because of it. That's a great job. Thank you for explaining that. Because again, I, I try and do my best to to try and meet where all of our guests are at. Some of them may be well-versed in this like, like yourself, and then some of them may may not, uh, and talking about the listeners anyways, but mm-hmm. uh, but really, really interesting. And then getting to hear you explain it, it just gives me a, a better way of explaining it or, or a different verbiage. And so I, I love being able to hear that. So one of the other things that that I learned from you, and that it was it was a story that I had heard a long time ago. I, I got really into John Wooden for a little while, and so I, I I was prompted whenever you mentioned him, and I can't I can't remember if it was an article or a podcast where you just talked about him giving little snippets throughout practice. And so another thing that I think we as coaches, and this is this has been my journey too. It, Whenever I first started, I would cue people to death, right? And I would just, you know, just say the things that I had said that had been said to me, and then it didn't really matter the outcome. And then I started learning about like learning and explaining the why. And then I got really long winded and it was like, I am just, you know, just doing way too much. And the athlete is just like, Hey, what do you want me to do? Like, just, just tell me what you want me to do. And so I think that there, you know, with, with coaches today, and I think that there are a lot of people going through this of, we got, you know, we got queued up with these small snippets, which may or may not may have made sense to us. And then we flipped the script and this is kind of, I think the pendulum swing that is baseball. Then we went to the, and this is something that I've done too. And this, we went to the opposite side of over explaining everything and having to explain the why and the different muscle groups that we're using. And it's like, a lot of players don't want that. Like they just want to told how to be told how to win the drill. Like, how do I beat this? Or, or what are what do you think about that? You know? And so I, I would love to hear, can you explain the John Wooden story and then kind of give us your best advice on 
when to overexplain, maybe not overexplain, when to uh, explain more in depth and when not to, and then how do we how do we just be better with with communication in regards to that? Certainly. Uh, so with the John Wooden story, it's something that I kind of stuck with me when my father told it to me when I was playing basketball. Just that idea that he would not jump in a lot in practice. He would let people figure it out. Yes, he would instruct. And yes, he was very much the idea of, okay, I am the coach and I do have knowledge to impart. What I loved about John Wooden, though, was during the game, he would rarely say anything. You look at old photos of him and he's sitting on the bench with a folder in his hands. And I I love to juxtapose that with, um, you know, nothing against the intention of coaches wanting to coach during a game. But you see coaches running up and down the sidelines and and yelling and, and, and instructing. And that's the best intention in the world. But in the game, it's time to compete. And if we are trying to get athletes to pay attention to us on the bench or in the dugout or on the sideline during a game, then we're pretty much splitting their attention too. And so I was always really captivated by that story and those images of Coach Wooden of him letting players play during the game. Now, certainly during a timeout, if there was a tactical adjustment that needed to be made, absolutely. Um, But yes, he was very much of the idea of less is more. Say the proper thing less times versus saying a lot, a lot. And the second part of your question, and to kind of provide some vulnerability too for for anybody that's listening, Mm -hmm. these things are really hard to to implement. And it's hard to change how we've always done it. When I was getting my my master's and my PhD, I worked as a baseball coach at a local facility and I would be learning and teaching and researching these motor learning and sports psych methods. And then I'd get to the facility at six o'clock at night and I would flip back to the way that I was taught. So it's very interesting that somebody that was learning this stuff would still flip back to their default setting of some of these more traditional models. So it's not easy to just implement these immediately. Um, But the other part of that is that, yes, having patience and compassion for ourselves when maybe we do fall back on our default and the traditional way of doing it. As far as what should we be saying and how often should we be saying it? I, def- I will defer to the profession, to the expert coach that's in the room. There are some things I think that we can do to bring awareness to it. We, we know that biomechanics are incredibly important and we need to utilize them. The issue is that we're really not good as individuals of using biomechanics to teach ourselves how to move. So to say your knee needs to be at 25 degrees and your elbow needs to be at 32 because of issue X or Y Mm-hmm. is is helpful is, is helpful in, adjust, in adjusting to an injury, but we need to find cues that are more relatable to that athlete, more external sure. cues. It's a great point. And it's, um, and it's not to say that biomechanics aren't important, angles aren't important, but we're just really bad as human beings at knowing where our body is in space. Um, one thing that I found was helpful for me as far as how much feedback am I providing is I would bring an umpire clicker with me to practice sometimes. And every time I said anything, whether it was good job, whether it was you stayed back there, I would click it and I would look at night at how much feedback I'd provided. And the next day I would show up and I would say, okay, can I limit that by 10%? And that started to kind of give me this bandwidth of when can I provide feedback? And then I was around my athletes, my, it was just youth athletes, 14 years old, but that was kind of providing a bandwidth for me of how often do I need to provide feedback and when. Uh, But the long and short of it is, can we lessen the amount of verbal feedback that we give can the drill speak more to the athlete than us as the coach? And can we provide, for the most part, more external cues than internal cues, more about the outcome of the movement than how the body is moving itself? No, that's that's obviously really, really, really good and, and something that we all need to make sure that we keep in mind for sure. And and I, I know we had uh, Nick Winkleman who came out uh, to spring training with the Rangers this, this last spring before uh, obviously we all got sent home. And he talked a lot, a lot, a lot about external cues. And mm-hmm. then I think one of the interesting things that he mentioned, and this was something that you could turn an internal cue, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts about external cues too. But he mentioned like if we were you know, instead of talking about the degrees of the knee or, or you, you need to do this, he said, put a piece of tape on it and then tell mm-hmm. like on the body part that you're trying to, that you're trying to get them to move better, like whatever it is, elbow or knee or whatever. He said, put a piece of tape on and tell them to move the, move the tape. And we're like, really? And he goes, I don't know. He, I think he even said, I, I don't know exactly why it works, but it turns an internal cue like your elbow into an external cue, which is the tape. And I thought that that was really interesting, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on external cues for sure. 
That he, uh, Dr. Winkleman is absolutely right. And there have been several studies that have been done by the, the professor that basically pushed external cues, Gabby Wolf, where, yeah, she just had people put tape on their hips. Or, you know, if you don't have tape available, there's, you know, use a batter's batting gloves. Instead of talking about their bottom hand, talk about their bottom batting glove. Um, if you're a, you know, if, if you're a right-handed pitcher, instead of talking about your left hand flying open, talk about your glove flying open. It, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to shifting the internal to an external cue. And when you talked about a lot of, you know, shifting and coaching where we try to move so far either direction, internal cues are not inherently bad. Um, there's been several studies that have come out, and I was fortunate enough to be part of one at the University of Tennessee looking at shifting from an internal to an external focus of attention. So as a coach, if we just feel like we really need to provide this internal cue, whether it's about how their knee is, how their hips, how their elbows, their shoulders, whatever it is, it's okay. It's can we then shift them to an external cue when they're executing the movement? Um, the problem that we get into is when an athlete is in this constant internal cueing process, because then when the game is on, um, when the game happens, and I think what Dr. Wakeman would have been referring to of what happens in the body is this, it's called the constrained action hypothesis. But when we try to think about how our body moves in space, it takes this automatic action and it breaks it down into its parts. It's okay. My hands need to move here. Then my elbow moves here. Then my knee moves here. And we become really blocky with those internal cues versus an external cue that kind of helps us move more fluidly. So to answer your question, it's, as coaches, if we give internal cues, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes they're okay. It's can we limit them and can we help to make sure our athletes shift to an external when they're ready to compete? No, that's really good. Perfect. And a great explanation at that. And and so I, another thing that I wanted to really get into, there's there's two more major topics that I want to cover today. And and the first one is, as you mentioned, that you wanted to try and make practices more game-like. And I know that that's a, that that's a term that's thrown around a lot and, and a lot of coaches do it. And like you even mentioned with the example of you training players, you kind of fall back into the patterns of things that we've always done because again, it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really interesting asking, asking this because I think we can all take perspective from different coaches, but what do we do currently that you would tweak a little bit to make it more game-like? And with with one of them, and I'm going to take this one from you, just because I, I was reading about it and I thought it was really good, was the coach flip fungo rather mm -hmm. than the coach flipping to himself. So having an, another person flipping it to the coach and then the coach hitting it uh, to random bases rather than like third base, shortstop, second base, first base. And I, I think that that was something that, that I think about and I'm like, man, I don't know why I didn't do that before, you know, <laughs> based on this or that. But just different examples like that of where we can take what we're already doing and just tweak it a little bit and make it more quote unquote game like. Uh, what advice do you have? Sure. And, you know, I'll even add a, a icing on the cake to the drill that you just described is we can do that same thing and have play infielders uh, start by facing the outfield. And the moment they hear the crack of the bat, they then have to basically jump in the air and turn around and find where the ball is. And that not only kind of gives them less information to work with, so now they're kind of working in this more uncomfortable environment, but that when we talk, we see like Dustin Pedroia jump up in the air and come down, he's working on getting the muscle slack out. So now they can actually move quicker because they have had to turn around and when they hit the ground, now they have to move. So just another piece of that puzzle with that, just adding more to the infield fungo. Um, mixed BP is a really, I think, low-hanging fruit for that. Just it, look, it's okay every once in a while to give the 40-40-40 batting practice of 40 feet away by a 40-year-old coach at 40 miles an hour. That's okay. Let guys have some fun and see if they can hit it out. But I think as coaches, we should pay attention to how many balls are in the back of the turtle versus how many balls are out in the field. I think the swing rate in the major leagues is something like 41%. Um, and obviously the miss rate is up there too. So if we only have two or three baseballs in the back of the turtle and 99% of them are out in the field, we're really not creating a game-like environment because a swing is not a swing. A swing is a decision. And the most important part of the swing is the decision to swing or not. And so if we are creating an environment where players are swinging 90% of the time, not only is that probably not the most game-like environment, but now we're probably not even helping to um, assist their eyes and their gaze tracking because now guys can predict where the ball is going to go versus having to pick up the information early in the coach's arm of where it's going to go. So 
praising when guys take, throwing balls intentionally, throwing curveballs if you got a coach that can throw sliders and changeups. And, and the last part of the mix BP is, you know, I see a lot of coaches that they'll throw a ball and they'll say, whoop, my bad. Oh, that's great. Throw a ball every once in a while. You know, throw them where they can't hit it. Let players be comfortable with taking pitches in batting practice. Um, and I'll kind of throw another hitting example into this that will actually uh, add the differential learning aspect that we talked about earlier. And when, I, when we talk about game-like, yes, we want game-like, but when I mention differential learning, it's adding variability to the system so the body starts to learn what does and doesn't work. And I've seen some really cool uh, drills done by um, some of our consultants from Dutch Baseball where for nine or ten pitches, they'll say, hey, just swing from different stances for ten pitches. So if you're a right-handed hitter, if your feet are pretty much – if you're toe-to-toe pretty much as you swing – on one swing, swing with your stance really open. The next time, swing really closed. Um, maybe swing with your fo- your left foot already in the air. And that's differential learning because it's adding variability to the system. And now their whole goal is just to make contact with the baseball. And that's that intrinsic feedback of, wow, my body's learning to organize around the ball coming at me because this variability is happening. And you don't have to do that the entire time, just nine or ten pitches where – and guys like it. They like the challenge of trying to make contact from different stances. That is not to say that this particular player isn't going to go step into the box in the first inning and start to swing with one stance open and then the next pitch one stance closed. It's a drill to help them learn how their body moves. And the wonderful thing about doing that type of drill, too, for any coaches that may have a player that's going through a slump, um, when a player engages in that type of training where they're kind of messing around with how their body moves, um, their brain kind of shuts off. Another $15 word, it's called the hypofrontality hypothesis. But in a nutshell, the front part of your brain is where conscious thought happens. And when we start to engage in this variability training, that front part of our brain, it, it's like a dimmer switch. It kind of dims a little bit. And so if a player is going through a slump and they're really in their own head, these kind of drills are really great for getting them outside of their own head and just getting them to start to feel how their body moves. And that can hopefully start to break them out of that slump too. I love that. And I think, uh, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head and, and again, thank you so much for explaining the $15 words. I'm over here trying to type <laughs> them in and Google them and, and you did a fantastic job. But the last thing that, that I really want to, uh, to hit on today. And again, I, I know that this is something that you're passionate about and that's, uh, and one, you hit it on it earlier in the, in the episode and that's autonomy within players and uh-huh. how, and building that in. And so tell us, Tell us, without explaining the entire Maslow's hierarchy of needs, tell right. us tell us why uh, autonomy is important with players, and then give us some practical ways in, way, in which we can build this in. And again, I, I think with pro players, it's it's so much easier to be able to do this because you have unlimited time and they're fairly mature. But we also have listeners who are, have 13-year-old freshmen or middle school kids who are all crazy. And so <laughs> just, if you don't mind, give us, give us uh, some different things in regards to autonomy. Yeah, autonomy is vital to motivation. And if we take that away, we're taking away one of the three pillars of motivation. The other two are I need to feel good at what I'm doing and I need to feel connected to those around me. And sport is really good at via either the box score or just, hey, you hit the game-winning home run and making us feel good about what we do and the locker room making us feel connected. Um, But autonomy is vital to motivation, and autonomy is also vital to how we process information. Uh, We've actually found that people remember better when they're given choice. And the literature is pretty strongly suggesting that when we allow people to control anything, and what I was really interested in during my graduate degree was letting people control their feedback schedule, but when we let them control anything, uh, good things tend to happen. So Yes, if in professional baseball, we can probably grant them more autonomy over different things. But if we're in college or in youth sports, maybe even just give an athlete two or three good choices. So if I really want to work on a, a, with a batter on his backside, he's really leaking forward. So that's what I want him to work on, him or, him or her. And I say, okay, hey, I want you to choose between these three drills, drill, drill X, Y, or Z. All three of them are going to help this player with their backside but they get to choose which drill it is. So now as the coach, we are getting to work on what we feel is most necessary for that athlete. And the athlete now feels like they have choice 
in the matter and they will inherently feel more motivated to engage in that drill because it was their choice. And the, what, the great thing about that too is when we're given choice, just since we're still in the brain here, um, the part of our brain that is responsible for releasing dopamine when we get a reward, it's called the striatum. When I, like Jonathan, if I were to ask you, would you like chocolate or vanilla? Something like that, dopamine gets released and it feels good. And the more important we feel the, um, the choice to be, the greater the dopamine hit will be. So uh, for coaches that maybe have more constraints, it's can we even provide what we would consider to be irrelevant choices of, um, you know, ask the players, hey, in what order would you like to do the drills today? Uh, there's getting everything done. Just in what order would you like to do it? Um, if it's youth athletes, you know, youth soccer, Hey, what snacks y'all want at halftime? Um, what drinks does everybody want after the basketball game today? So those would be kind of the start of providing choice and autonomy. It's, they can be irrelevant, nothing to do with the sport at all. It's still great. And the more that we start to provide choice to athletes, the more that that muscle of control starts to be flexed. So now the athlete truly does start to become their own best coach. I love that. And again, it's, it's something that we, we, I think look at and we were like, man, we want them to take complete control of, and it just, it, you know, it, it's something that it doesn't necessarily have to be like vanilla or chocolate. That's a great example. And I really liked, uh, I really liked your explanation behind that. So I've got a couple of quick hitters for you. And, uh, and the first one that I think is so relevant to us right now, it's, I think COVID has forever changed just about every everybody's opinion about something uh, in regards to we've had to change our lives because of it. And so what is something that you will change forever as a, let's say, baseball coach or mental, mental skills coordinator uh, because of your experience that's, that you've gone through with COVID? I, I think what will change for me is truly what it means to be a good teammate and what that looks like. Um, I, I had the good fortune to be with our alternate training site this this season. And just like anybody that was in sport, we had to make a lot of sacrifices as far as how we lived, uh, being in the bubble and the protocols that we had to follow. And I think it truly shows how we can all pull together to make something work, because regardless of what we think about a certain, whether it's a rule regulation or a COVID protocol, we're all part of this. And if Major League Baseball says this is what we need to do to ensure that baseball goes off, regardless of what we think, we have to be good teammates and sacrifice maybe our own person. When I say belief system, I mean what we may think about a situation and do it for the betterment of, of others. Uh, so I think that for me is and, and yeah, the, the protocols were, you know, they were frustrating at times, but we all had to pull together to make sure that the 2020 season happened because too many people were relying on baseball to go off this season for their own livelihood. And I think it truly shows how far being a good teammate can bring people together and just how important it is in the grand scheme of things. All right, perfect. The next one is what is one drill that we can steal from you that you know that our players will love? Um, I'm going to be a little biased on this one, but it's funky and it's different. Um, oh, I love it. We, we, um, it's, it's an infield drill and we will, instead of hitting player and you can do this like the drill that you, you described earlier with not telling the player what it's going to be. But if this was a case where a coach maybe felt like they wanted it to be a little more predictable, hit players, three different sized balls. So hit them a baseball, hit them one of those smaller, hard baseballs and hit them a softball. And it's weird. It's funky because guys aren't used to it. So it's uncomfortable. But the great thing about it is it's helping build their vision because now the ball is expanding in their retina, like how we see things at different rates. So it's kind of shocking our visual system. And now guys are going to be, oh my gosh, I, that ball came on me faster than I thought, or it was slower than I thought because of the different sizes are expanding differently based on the way that it's going at the player. So not only are they getting better at fielding, but it's shocking their eyes and they'll start to feel it after a while. They'll say that it just looks different as it comes at me because now we've given them three different size baseballs to try to field. And now when you just try to field one size baseball, it's that much easier because your eyes are really accustomed to that particular perception. Wow. I love that. So what three, if, if I was going to ask you to elaborate, what three types of balls would you use? So like a baseball, a tennis ball maybe, or something else? 
Yeah, you could certainly do that. Um, we, we will have our coaches come out with tennis rackets, and they'll have tennis balls, racquetballs, and handballs, and they'll hit it to our players, but our players will just be catching them barehanded. So working through a lot of different hops, really having to be um, soft with their hands. But the one that I was just describing, yes, we, we use a big softball, a regular baseball, and then I, I wish I could think of the actual name for them, but they're basically baseballs. They're just like half the size, uh, so they're still hard balls, but – what this does is because the the retinal image of the object as it comes toward them, it changes based on the size of the object. So now they have to be even more in tune to how their body's moving in space. So that's kind of the, the science behind the drill, but it's just, it's funky. And I think once players get past the initial sense of why am I catching a softball, they start to really dive into it because a lot of the cool stuff that's happening in the brain is making them enjoy it. Interesting. Okay. So, and also I, I think that I, I, I want to get into this a little bit too. So with the max BP machine, which is the one that shoots out the really small looking golf balls, uh, tell us about, you know, obviously besides brain and, and hand coordination, uh, would that be kind of a similar thing of, of it just improves focus, which improves all of those things that you just mentioned? It, it does. Um, and especially because the, the difficulty of it, of hitting a very small ball that's coming at a very high velocity. Uh, the thing that we, we always need to be aware of, though, is the re repetition. Is is it the same speed, the same ball, the same distance every time? Because at first, yes, it'll be very uncomfortable. But once guys start to self or guys or girls start to self-organize around the drill, like if they start to tee off on that, then we need to up the challenge. We either need to move the, the uh, machine closer or we need to change the location of where it's coming. So yes, those kind of things can absolutely help with focus, determination, concentration. We just need to recognize when a player is making strides. So they're kind of always in that failure gap to make sure that they are constantly engaged and focused and they can't just predict where the ball is going to be. Oh, that's great. I love that. And then finally, if you could recommend one book or let's say that, that we gave you an unlimited budget and you could buy one book for all of the listeners today, uh, since we have Thanksgiving coming up and I think this is actually going to go out on Thanksgiving. So for Thanksgiving, you bought everyone a book. Uh, what would that book be? Um, I'm, I'm going to cheat with you here and provide two. One that's a little more, um, I'm going to say scientific and one that's just a great thing to have around Thanksgiving. Uh, I'll start with the first one that's a little more scientific. It's called Black Box Thinking. And the gist of it is why people, why some learn from failure and others do not. And that really opened my eyes to how do we interpret failure and how do certain industries view failure? How does the airline industry view failure versus the healthcare industry? And it's very eye-opening to what, how certain industries have evolved based on their view of failure and why some industries tend to lag behind because of that. So black box thinking, uh, why people learn from failure and others don't. The one that would be great for people just around the holidays, it, it's a fiction book. Uh, it's called Beartown by Friedrich Bachmann. And one of the best sports psychology books I've ever read that has nothing to do with sports psychology, it's this wonderful story about this town um, in Sweden that's just obsessed with hockey. And this author does such an amazing job of really describing what's beautiful about sport and beautiful about the camaraderie of sport while also kind of shining a light on maybe the negative aspects of sport. So for people around their families this this holiday season, it's just a wonderful thing to talk about around the dinner table. Even if you're not a sports fan, it just does such a wonderful job of crafting this really strong narrative around the human condition. And it does so through the story of sport. Perfect. I love that. I'm going to have to pick those up. I think not to toot my own horn here, but you may be the first guest that has mentioned more than one book that I have never read before. And I like to, I like to be able to read as much as possible. So I'm really, I'm, I'm interested in these two. So you've, you've definitely piqued my interest with those, but, uh, last but not least, if, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you and just ask you about anything that you've talked about today, I know you, you're not really on social media, but is there a platform that we can reach you at? Uh, certainly. Uh, my, my joke is I'm probably one of the few millennials that has no social media at all. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes to my detriment, I will admit. Uh, my, my email address, if anybody would like to reach out, is andy.bass at pirates.com. That's A-N-D-Y dot B-A-S-S at pirates.com. Um, really good about responding to emails. So that, unfortunately, that, that's probably the only platform I have available now, but I... I this is why I get out of bed in the morning is coaching and it's finding where the mental game and the physical game intersect in the world of coaching. So 
I, I'm always up to chat about this. And, you know, I, I'm, I love learning. I love the idea of being a white belt learner. I, I'm always a beginner. And I, I look forward to learning from, from those in the field and from expert coaches because my passion is coaching. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.